Welcome to this edition of the Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and explores the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And today, I'm here with, as ever, Caitlin. Hello. And PI's Advocacy Director, Edin Omanovich. Hello. Today, we're looking at the private surveillance industry, what they do, how what they do is used, even in courts. It's unsupervised, unregulated, and operates in the gaps and shadows. Edin, what does that mean? So if you think of private detectives, private eyes, so you might have seen them in highly acclaimed and really important films like The Conversation or There's Something About Mary, depending on your (laughs) cup of tea. Depending on your level. I was going to say who framed Roger Rabbit, but okay. (laughs) Okay, so you get what those kind of guys do, right? Kind of former coppers, connections, bugging people's cars and whatnot for certain clients. Everyone has that kind of idea in their mind. That is true. Those guys still exist, but it's kind of over the last 20 years, really bound and blossomed into a huge professional industry that doesn't just service individuals, perhaps who can see what their spouse is up to, but huge multinationals as well as governments. So we wanted to kind of put together a briefing on this purely because it turns out that London, where we are, is actually one of the world's global hubs for this now, for a whole bunch of reasons. People listening to this might have heard of the firm Black Cube, a group of former Mossad agents. They were hired by Harvey Weinstein to stop the publication of news articles, obviously into the sexual misconduct claims. So the kind of things that they were reported to be doing included, for example, using false identities to befriend women online and to essentially extract information from them. Two of Black Cube's employees were recently sentenced in Romania for attempting to hack into the emails of the country's then head of anti-corruption, who's, by the way, now Europe's chief prosecutor, at the behest of a former intelligence agent. So that's just one company. There's a whole bunch of others that we've tried to kind of put together, including, for example, Wieland. These guys were set up by former MI6 officers. They were essentially compiling evidence on the social media accounts of a campaigner, environmental campaigner, and providing that information to BP. So these are the kind of companies that we're looking at. These are the kind of activities that they're doing. And we essentially want to put all that together with an analysis of how this has been allowed to happen, what kind of rules and regulations are in place, and what steps we actually need to take in the UK to change that. So the podcast you're about to hear is a conversation between you, Eden, Tomaso, our global policy lead, and a man called Franz Wild. That's an amazing name. Yeah, absolutely. And some amazing insight here as well. So Franz is a reporter and editor. He spent over a decade working as a reporter for Bloomberg and has led investigations into things like grand corruption, fraud, insider trading. Uh, he's got a wealth of experience on this topic and he works at a project called The Enablers, which investigates how UK executives, lawyers, 
and these types of companies are enabling oligarchs, dictators and criminals around the world. This has actually become quite a bit of focus recently in the UK, particularly with regards to the recent invasion by Russia of Ukraine. So I thought it'd be really interesting to speak to France and some of the recent work they've been doing at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Check them out at thebureauinvestigates.com. They're essentially a bunch of really capable journalists who are working on investigations in the public interest. Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. So, Franz, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Could you kind of just roughly explain the genesis of these kind of private intelligence firms in the UK and perhaps some of the earlier companies who you've been looking at? Yeah, thanks for the question. The genesis of the private intelligence firms in the UK, particularly in London, is really a story of the recent period of globalization, probably beginning with the end of the Cold War. So we're all familiar with the kind of private eye who kind of follows someone's wife or husband around the streets to see if they're cheating on their partner. But what happened in the late 80s and early 90s was a few people kind of realized that there's massive potential here to turn this into a big corporate venture. So if you're buying a company or wanting to do business with someone or something like that, you kind of want to have an idea of who the other side is. So are they clean, essentially? Is this someone you want to get involved with? And often these are big corporate entities or these are wealthy people from another country. What you're going to do is you're going to hire one of these corporate intelligence outfits and you're going to find out everything you can. And the first ones who really did this were Kroll. So Jules Kroll was someone who came over from the US and he set up an office here. And he really turned this into a big business. Since then, there have been a number of really big outfits. Kroll himself sold his business and started up K2. So you could just see how much mileage there was in this. And, you know, now some of them are listed companies and some of them kind of have remained more boutique and more niche. And there's a whole spectrum of the kind of corporate intelligence company you might want to hire. And when you say like you could hire them to, for example, carry out due diligence investigation into companies and stuff, like how would they go about doing that? Like what kind of activities are they engaging in? And is it just like corporations who hire them or what kind of like clients are they aiming for? So they have all sorts of methods and each individual firm will probably have its own specializations. The bigger ones would ordinarily start off with what's essentially an open source search. So they would scour the internet and and also databases, try and find whether there are any criminal records or identify where people live, what business assets they have, who they're in business with. And a lot of that you can essentially do from your desk. For example, nowadays, it's so easy to find stuff on Companies House or Open Corporates and all the other services. And you'd probably go through the Panama Papers database and see if anything pops up there. It's that sort of thing. And then the stuff that's a little bit harder is essentially surveillance work. So you would put a team of people on this individual 
and you'd follow them around basically you you find out who they're meeting and then through that you can piece together a picture of what they're up to because obviously you're only meeting people who you're actually doing things with so if someone's kind of disappearing off to moscow every week that raises a question for you well why are they going to moscow so that then if you have enough money and this is where it starts getting really expensive you put a team in moscow and you wait for them so next time they arrive in moscow you watch them get off the plane and then you see okay who they're going to go and see are they going to the kremlin are they going to meet someone else and th- that's how you kind of build a, a picture and all of it's down to money really the more money you have the more you can get those are the kind of above board practices and then you know more and more we've seen the increase of practices that kind of push the ethical boundaries of of what's acceptable um and that's something we in our reporting have particularly looked into i think in one of your reports you mentioned uh, sometimes they they use informers so they basically hire people to gather information like people that may be kind of close to the target yes exactly i mean the first thing which is something that journalists do as well is they look for people who used to work either at a company or with an individual and when i talk about an individual here often there are billionaires or multimillionaires who are incredibly powerful in their own right and incredibly wealthy in their own right so they kind of act like companies you know the target may be an individual of this kind or a company so you might find people who used to work for this person or this company you're interested in and then you'll kind of get the inside scoop on what it's like or you know how they run their business how they comport themselves whether they've got debts they haven't declared or whether they've had dalliances for instance all that sort of thing that might be relevant the other thing that the more aggressive ones try to do is they actually try to get information from people who are currently close to these companies or individuals so they'll try and kind of entice these sources to speak to them and what we found in our reporting at the bureau of investigative journalism is that they often also pay for information so and that takes on two forms one is you know I'll pay you x amount you know this goes into tens of thousands sometimes hundreds of thousands for a certain amount of information or i will actually pay you off entirely so you turn and you become a witness in my case often this is for lawsuits as well so if i'm suing someone i want to know absolutely everything about the other person i want to find out what their dirty laundry is basically and so again i'll hire one of these corporate investigations outfits and in order to get a witness i may pay someone you know again hundreds of thousands of pounds to come over onto my side and to testify against them or to provide evidence against them so that's something we we definitely saw as quite a real and repeated event and so this information then eventually goes before a court can you give a, a bit more uh, details of the kind of cases where this information is used and maybe something about the law firms as well involved in that yeah i mean that's a really interesting area because obviously any lawsuit will involve a law firm and ultimately the law firms run the lawsuits and the corporate intelligence 
companies, they don't call the shots. They're basically just out gathering evidence. And often it's information that they would like to submit into court. And sometimes it's just essentially intelligence. These lawsuits are so big, they run for years and they cost hundreds of millions of pounds. So strategic knowledge of what the opponent is up to is incredibly valuable. In terms of what kind of lawsuits, the thing to understand about them is that the ultimate aim of a lot of these lawsuits, not all of them, but a lot of them, is to take out an opponent, whether that's a business rival or a commercial rival of some sort or a political rival. So we've seen cases coming out of Russia, for instance, or Kazakhstan, that really in, in many ways don't have anything to do with London but that are brought in London because English courts are very open to these sorts of cases. And what they originate as is a political conflict. So, I mean, one case we covered, there's a conflict between the Kremlin, basically, and a former confidant of Vladimir Putin's. And a Russian state agency pursued this person through the English courts. They accused him of fraud. And there were certainly credible allegations, but the root cause of this dispute is really much broader. It's about power in Russia. And so what happens is the client, so in this case, the Russian state agency employs a London-based law firm. The London-based law firm then puts together a plan. So how are we going to pursue this lawsuit? What are the tools available? So for instance, you might be able to issue a freezing order against someone to freeze all the money they have. And that really ties someone up in knots. Or th there are any number of other forms of lawsuits you might issue. And in increasingly, actually, people are referring to this trend as lawfare. So not warfare, but lawfare. The result of this is that the opponent has to deal with this lawsuit. They can't run away from it. They have to spend millions of pounds on their own just defending it. It absorbs all of their time. So let's say they're a political opponent in Russia. This is usually one individual. This individual won't have time to kind of challenge you in Russia because he's too busy fighting this lawsuit. So what the corporate intelligence company does is they follow this person, they pay witnesses close to that person. They might put a GPS tracking device on the person's car. They might follow them on holiday. They'll take photos of them, you know, with any luck, they'll have a mistress so they can take photos of the mistress and them together. They can leak that to the press. There are all these different things that they can do. And ultimately they also try and find out where this person holds their money and they can find the money by kind of following the person, seeing, okay, which locations are they going to? Oh, you know, last Saturday they went down to Surrey and went to this enormous house. Well, now we can look that house up and see who owns the house. and Maybe it's linked to this person. More recently, we've found evidence that a lot of it is, on the face of it at least, might even be unlawful. So some of the surveillance, for example, there's privacy law and there's data protection law. And, you know, having a, for example, strapping a camera to monitor someone's house there are questions around that. There are certainly listening devices that are planted, bugs, which we saw, I think, in the dispute between the Barclay brothers in the Ritz Hotel. 
And increasingly as well, hacking is being used. So email accounts are hacked. And often it's very hard to know who actually commissioned the hacking because nobody will say, I asked so-and-so to hack this email account. But guess what I found on the internet? There's this link. I don't know who put it there. But this guy's email inbox is all on online. And all these emails are really useful for my case, by the way. And I can prove X, Y, and Z. And so there's this whole layer of information that's been dredged up, sometimes through unlawful methods, and it's then put in front of court. I mean, there's quite a famous Russian website called Compromat.ru, and you can find all sorts of stories on there. Half of them aren't true, but you'll find secret recordings and transcripts. You know, there there was a, a husband and wife who were on a Skype call, and suddenly the recording of that Skype call kind of popped up on this website. And that was then referred to by English lawyers in an English court. And that was accepted. Nobody kind of raised any objections. What is the judge's attitude to the evidence that is presented in front of them? Do they ask where it comes from? Is it being obtained legitimately? Or do they just accept it? So in England, we have the adversarial legal system. So what that means is if I put something into court, then the other side needs to challenge it. If the other side doesn't challenge it, generally it'll be accepted within reason. But the idea is that both sides are kind of sparring in court. And then the judge says, okay, I've decided now this side is right on this point. The other side's right on the other point, for example. So the first thing is that the other side has to challenge it. But the problem they have is that unlawfully obtained evidence is generally accepted in an English court. And the reason for that is that the judges take the view that we don't care how you got this information. What we care is that it's here and that it'll help us build a fuller picture of the truth. So maybe these emails were obtained from a hack, but now that we have them, they actually help us, don't they? In my opinion, it's slightly problematic because we never have a full picture and it kind of creates this precedent for lawlessness. It, it encourages people to break the law to obtain evidence. And there certainly is a real industry around this, a sort of hacking industry that's been generated exactly by this phenomenon and by this approach. Obviously, if you can prove that someone did hack you, you know, you might have a criminal case against them. Proving that someone's been hacked is incredibly difficult. And usually no one's got the time or resources to actually look into this. I mean, I'm certainly not aware of the police ever picking up a hacking case and saying, this is something we, we need to look at. That whole space feels incredibly unsupervised and unregulated. It sounds like a lot of the things they're actually doing are essentially the tools of spycraft, exactly the kind of thing that Spooks would be doing. Is there kind of an overlap between like intelligence agents and police officers and people that go into the corporate intelligence field? Yeah, 100%. In our experience, most of the people in the sort of harder edge of the corporate intelligence industry come out of the army, come out of spy services, come out of the Metropolitan Police. 
off the top of my head, I could name 20, 30 people who fall into that category. I mean, a lot of them are sort of former special forces. And, and obviously, depending on their specific background, they'll naturally gravitate or fit into a specific role. There are also definitely cases of former Metropolitan Police or Scotland Yard officers who have left the service. And obviously, you know, the thing to remember is these people got to where they are because the state trained them. They gained experience through serving the state and being paid by the state. And now they're obviously, generally, they're making a lot more money ultimately serving oligarchs and kleptocrats and autocrats. And often they still have all these connections within the state, be it intelligence or be it police. And so they'll obviously try and get access to information that they shouldn't have access to by using these old connections. One company that's very well known is called Black Cube, which is actually originally Israeli. And a lot of the people at Black Cube are from Israeli intelligence services. And, you know, we, we know that Israel in particular has a lot of experience with signals intelligence, sort of industry jargon for anything that involves intercepting communications. And nowadays, a lot of that is, you know, hacking phones, like we know from Pegasus, or hacking emails or other kinds of hacking. And I guess one of the ironies here is that, Tommaso, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the UK, like the state itself isn't actually allowed to use intercepted material as evidence in criminal cases. Yet you have this entire industry that's kind of building up cases doing exactly that. I'm glad you raised that because that's actually a point I was hoping to make. You know, there are specific laws which regulate what the state is allowed to do. So if you're a state intelligence officer, it's incredibly difficult to obtain a warrant to listen to someone. And even if you can listen to someone, if you can monitor someone's phone, you can never, ever use it in court. So an individual's privacy is guaranteed as long as you know, the person kind of spying on them is the state. If the person spying on them does not work for the state, you know, all rules go out the window, basically. You know, not only can they listen to you and record you, but they can then also submit that as evidence in court. You know, it's kind of like the state is operating with its legs tied. And again, I kind of want to emphasize this point. The ultimate clients here are usually very high-profile kleptocrats from the former Soviet Union or the Middle East or Africa or oligarchs or actually just top-drawer criminals. But because they're so rich, they can just afford to have these corporate intelligence services at their beck and call and to deploy all these methods. You mentioned uh, regulation uh, and as I understand in some other jurisdictions uh, there is a sort of a licensing uh, scheme for this kind of private investigators or you know corporate surveillance uh, which is not uh, the case in the UK as far as I understand. Do you have any sense of will some sort of licensing uh, address some of these issues about how free at the moment it, it sounds? Uh, <laughs> is that something that will help? Yeah, I mean, what's clear is that the current law appears to be insufficient. You know, if you accept that a lot of this behavior is unethical and, and sometimes unlawful, then it's clear that there needs to be some kind of regulation. And 
you see that every professional service, be it bankers or accountants or estate agents, they all have a body regulating them. And you can kind of quibble about how effective they are. But private intelligence is unregulated. And, you know, 10 years ago, in the wake of the phone hacking scandal, there was a big push to try and get it regulated. And that kind of just fell flat and has kind of just been forgotten about now. But there's certainly a strong case for it. I mean, I would point out, you know, that the other part of this duo, are obviously the, the lawyers who generally benefit from this information, they are regulated. They've got the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority and the SRA has a code of conduct. And, you know, as part of the code of conduct, the solicitors are required to uphold the interests of justice. Now, obviously, the interest of justice is an incredibly broad term. And the problem with it is that it really means very little at the end of the day when you see that lawyers don't really do any checks on where information came from. And so step one is kind of having a regulator. Step two is making sure that the regulator actually has a proper code of conduct and has teeth so that when there are violations, that these are actually are investigated and the people are held to account. So th there's a long way to go, but I definitely think it, it's very doable. Absolutely. And I think within some of your reporting, I think the case for that regulation is just so apparent. You mentioned some of the cases that you had looked at, particularly with oligarchs and Russia and Kazakhstan. Could you maybe just summarize some of your reporting on this and stuff that you found more recently? Yeah, I mean, we will update you soon. <laughs> we're, we're currently working on an article that touches on some of these areas. Last year, where we kind of last did a major piece on this, our reporting focused primarily on a company called Diligence. And Diligence is a London-based corporate intelligence company they employ mostly former special boat services, military staff, and they specialize in surveillance. And what we found was there was credible evidence that they did a lot of things like offering to pay witnesses, planting GPS trackers on people's vehicles, recording conversations where perhaps that was not what was wanted, <laughs> And also kind of attaching cameras to people's homes so that they could monitor them. There were quite a few activities which raised a lot of ethical questions. And, you know, I'd just like to point out that they very clearly said, well, they have very high ethical standards and they've never broken the law or anything like that, which isn't entirely correct. There have been in the past several lawsuits against them because of their practices a long time ago now, in 2005, one of their founders impersonated an MI5 official to obtain a confidential report from KPMG, the accountancy firm. So, <laughs> you know, that kind of gives you a flavor of how they roll. And Diligence has worked a lot with a law firm called Hogan Lovells, which is now, I think, the third largest law firm in the UK. They have several incredibly large cases, possibly the biggest cases that London has seen in its courts. 
you know, the one I mentioned earlier, they're acting for, or were acting for at least, Russia's deposit insurance agency. And they were going after, you know, one of Kremlin's former associates, a man called Sergei Pugachev. They also acted for the Kazakh state against a former Kazakh banker called Mukta Abliazov. And these cases were running for years and years and years and, and, you know, cost an absolute fortune and, you know, upended a lot of lives. And, you know, one of the issues around these cases is that they set a lot of precedent. So they established the kind of rules of engagement. And because they have so much money, they basically show it is totally acceptable to behave in this way. And nobody will call you up on it. And what that means is then waiting in the wings, all these other smaller cases who follow in their footsteps and say, well, you know, this lot did it. So we might as well do the same thing on a smaller scale, perhaps. But we've kind of seen a precedent that this work, nobody's going to call us up on this. Absolutely. I think it's just madness that it's allowed to happen in the first place. And the longer that is the case, all it's going to do is incentivize it. So we've seen the kind of proliferation off these companies, as you mentioned, and that's only going to continue, really. So that report is on the Bureau's website and your upcoming one as well. Where, where can people find that? Yeah, so if you can go to our website, thebureauinvestigates.com, all one word, the Bureau Investigates. And my team is called the Enablers Team, so you can kind of find the Enablers Team and that's where you can see all of our stories. This particular story we reported together with the New York Times and it appeared in the New York Times as well. But if you want to see a kind of fuller list of what we've done, and we've also done work, you know, talking to lawyers, speaking with lawyers and the SRA that I mentioned and trying to engage them and trying to understand, you know, where does all of this go? So there's stuff about that on the website too. And it's been interesting recently in the last sort of six months, I think, a number of factors have come together. One is a, a few journalists were sued in the English courts for things they wrote. They were sued by Kazakh and Russian oligarchs. And the lawsuits all ended with the journalists being successful. And thankfully, they were backed by well-funded corporations themselves and, you know, organizations that believed in in their journalism and stood by them. So that raised a lot of awareness around this issue. And the second thing is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has also really highlighted the problems around the oligarch class, sort of the, the oligarchs who are close to Putin and the footprint they have in London and the way they use these law firms, for instance. So, for example, you know, one of the sanctioned oligarchs, Roman Abramovich, who's very well known for his ownership of Chelsea. He sued former FT journalist Catherine Belton, who wrote a fantastic book about Putin's oligarchs, essentially. And she won the case, ultimately. I mean, they settled and she sort of had to make a minor adjustment to the next edition of her book. But ultimately, none of the real facts were, were altered. But, it, you know, it cost her publishers one and a half million pounds. So because of the Russian invasion and because of these libel lawsuits, there's been a small group of MPs who started beating the drum and kind of saying this is a problematic issue and we need to figure out how we regulate this whole industry. I mean, they're primarily focused on the lawyers, 
But I think as awareness grows around these issues, there may also be scope for thought about corporate intelligence companies and how they should be regulated and, you know, what curbs need to be placed on them. Definitely. Well, can only hope so. And we'll definitely put a link to the Enablers project as well. And hopefully we'll see some action on that soon. So thank you again so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Franz. Thanks for listening. Do you have any questions or topics you want us to cover? Is there anything technology or privacy related you've wondered about or never understood? We're here to help. Send us your question at pvcy.org slash questions. Remember, you can tell us what you think of the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org slash podsignup. And we'll include some links to relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening. Rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use or on our website at pvcy.org slash techpill. Music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Cool.